So we're doing this series on worship. It's a four-week series. We started last week. We looked at who God is, right? We did that a a lot. And then we talked a little bit about how to respond, but that was mostly for our gathering, okay? And and so this morning, we're gonna go back into this, but we're gonna look at more. How do we worship in our daily lives, right? So we're here together. This is not the only time that we worship. We worship all the time. We're worshipers all the time. We're always worshiping something or someone, Always. We're always looking at something and seeing it as beautiful, shiny, glorious. We're willing to sacrifice for that thing. And we're hoping that that thing, when we get it, transforms us so that it or that person will approve of us or other people will say, what an amazing person. Or at least we could look in the mirror and say, ah, finally, I'm so pleased with this. We're made to worship. This is our reality. The other reality of our times, though, is we love reality television. You didn't know I was going there, did you? Um, Survivor. How many of you watch Survivor? Great. Um, Didn't count. Uh, Amazing Race, right? That's a fun one. There's a Canadian Amazing Race, too, I think. A lot of apologies in that one. Um, Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, all right. I've never watched it. I just thought I'd give that some, some props. And then our favorite, of course, is Jersey Shore. Um, yeah, right. I've never seen this, but, um, but apparently it impacts viewers. And what's so interesting about reality television is that it's legitimately changing our society and our culture. That those that we see on these shows, we want to be like, or we don't want to be like. What's interesting is Jersey Shore. Okay. I was reading a book this week. I forget the name, like Invisible Influence or something like that. But this book made, made note that on the show, Jersey Shore, uh, some other competing company sent Snooki, I don't even know who Snooki is, but sent Snooki Gucci bags so that she would use Gucci bags on the show so that people would see that Gucci's gross and they would buy the competing product. It's pretty smart. And then uh, Mike Sor- Sorrentino, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch was willing to pay him not to wear their product on the show. I mean, how much do you have to stink at life to be paid not to wear a product? It's usually the opposite. But this group is willing to pay so that he doesn't wear their product, so that there's no association. Because the companies understand that when a product gets associated with a person in real life, that's going to have a big impact on the bottom line of their company. So they're willing to lose money so that they gain more money. Because reality television is changing our realities. So we're not going to talk about reality television this morning. We are going to talk about those the reality of heaven. Because in a sense, we get this, this shot, this, this opportunity to see into the heavenly realms. It's this big brother opportunity to get to see in on what is happening. And we didn't sneak in there. It's actually Jesus who opens this curtain for us to be able to view the reality of what is going on. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the heavenly worship so that we grasp what Jesus was talking about when he prayed on earth as it is in heaven, because we can't really talk about on earth until we know what's going on in heaven. So we're going to do two things this morning. We're going to look at Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter four and five. And then we're going to go back to the passage that Vivian read for us earlier from Matthew chapter six, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, We know it as the Lord's prayer. Okay. So we're going to look at these two things, but here we're going to start in Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or you can just look up here. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible as you're leaving today, please grab one. Revelation 4, 1 and 2 says, After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Amazing. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit. We're gonna look at what it means to be in the spirit in worship um, a few weeks from now. Um, I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now we're gonna see other thrones in a few minutes that are surrounding this throne, but I want for us, okay, in this highly narcissistic, 
highly, it's all about me and my self-esteem. This highly, I'm going to develop life so that everything is just about me and my desires. I just want for us to sit for a moment and see that that throne isn't for us. It's not your trophy for participation. This trophy is for one. This throne, not trophy, throne is for one. And we're going to see him in verse three. And he is beautiful, absolutely stunning. And here it is. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I wish we had all the time to get into this, but we don't. But God is so glorious that you can't look on him and live. He's so holy that you can't see him in all of his splendor and live to tell the tale. We, we saw that last week with Isaiah saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, getting ready to die. He's so glorious, you can't look on him. And now, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. What Jasper does, okay, I've never played with Jasper rocks or anything, but what Jasper does, I'm told, is it intensifies the light. So you imagine glory you can't look at and then make it brighter. This is what the author is trying to get at. That his glory is so beautiful, so wonderful, so amazing. You can't even think about what this is like. You think about the most beautiful person, most beautiful scene. It's better than that. You think about, man, if I could just get what I'm longing for, that opportunity, that person, that position. It's better than that. He's better than that. That's all he wants to communicate. And what's interesting though is that there's a rainbow around the throne. The time that we saw the rainbow was in Genesis, first book of the Bible. The rainbow was, was given after the flood. And the rainbow is a bow. What do you do with a bow? You shoot things with a bow, right? I grew up in Maine. I like to shoot with a bow and arrow. That's all we had to do. It's like, go play with your bow and arrow, four-year-old. It's like, it's a great idea. But a bow, you, you inflict pain on someone, right? It's judgment, squirrel. Um, this is what bows do. The rainbow is a bow that's been set pointing up, meaning that God is never going to point his bow down at us in the way that this has happened before. It's a symbol of mercy. I'm going to have mercy on you. And all around this throne is a rainbow. So anything that we see that will be judgment in the book of Revelation is coming through mercy. That even in God's judgment, he's being merciful. We can't imagine that. We just can't imagine that. That should blow our minds. Because when I want to judge someone, man, I want to judge them. There's no mercy moving. Someone spit in my son's face this past week. Like, there was, there was a little bit of judgment moving in me, right? Righteousness. Like, talk to the, to the person's dad. I said, your son spit. I didn't do this, right? I was like, hey, by the way, uh, your son spit my son's face. He's like, oh, I'm sure it was an accident. I'm like, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. There's no rainbow here, right? There's judgment. I'm ready. Uh, but with the Lord, he's not like me. He's merciful. God is a merciful God. When he looks at you today, he looks at you through the lens of mercy. Mercy. This world is not going to give you mercy. No one's going to give you mercy unless you show them that you're worth it. But God sits on a throne where he's giving mercy. Now, there's a scene. There's a scene happening around the throne. We don't have time to read it all, so let me just tell you what's going on. And you can disagree with me later, that's fine. But in Revelation 4, verses four through seven, we see that there's four living creatures and 24 elders that are there. Let me give you my interpretation really quickly, which I think is right. Uh, 24 elders represent all of the people of God. In the Old Testament, we saw the 12 tribes of Israel. New Testament, we see the 12 apostles, okay? You bring these two together, you have 24 encapsulating before, after Jesus, okay? So you bring these two together and they're representative of all of the people of God. So they're there representing us. The four living creatures uh, could very well be representation of all of creation, Okay, so just put this in your minds that all of creation and all of the people of God are there 
around the throne, worshiping, involved in worship of this one who sits on the throne. And here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Ceaseless, declarative, so words, and descriptive, not just general, wow, very descriptive words about this one who sits on the throne. So 24 elders, four living creatures have this ceaseless, declarative, and descriptive worship. Their words are saying something. We don't want to sing songs that don't say anything. We don't want to say, oh, 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 God is good. Oh, 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 right? It's lame. You're not saying anything. God is like, man, I feel so worshiped. They said, oh, so well today. It's not it. We want to be descriptive. And why are we worshiping this one? Because in heaven, they're very descriptive. Here it is. The four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around within. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So just in this little piece, listen to what they're saying about God. You're holy. And it's not enough to say at one time, you're holy, 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 meaning you are other. You are perfect. You are righteous. You're holy. Usually when we say holy, it's followed by some other word we probably shouldn't say. But for God, we don't need another word. It's just holy. Holy, your splendor is so wonderful. Holy. They are ceaselessly saying this. Holy. Next, they're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The sovereignty, the control that you have, it's all yours. We think that we have control. What do you have control over? You're like, I have control over my video games. Awesome. No one cares. I have control over my family. That's abusive. And no one cares, right? The Lord sits in this holy goodness, perfection, and sovereignty that he is in control of all things. I'm so glad that you are not the sovereign one over my life. I'm so glad that he is the one who is sovereign because he always does what is good, right, and true. Always does what is best. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's sovereign. The Lord God. There's only one God. He's not saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord who's God among many gods. One God. One true and living God right here on this throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He's omnipotent, all powerful. He can do what he wants. And that would be very, very scary if he could do whatever he wanted, but we didn't know that he was good. But because we know that he is good, this, uh, this aspect, this attribute of him being almighty is amazing. Have all the power to do all the good and all the best. This is what they're declaring and worshiping. And then they end by saying, who was and is and is to come. This eternality of God they're worshiping him for. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we say, the the lives that we live, the, the prayers that we're praying should all be descriptive and declarative of who God really is. You can't make up God. We have to see who he is and then and then worship out of that. And look at the posture. So ceaseless, descriptive, and declarative worship. And look at the posture. The 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the Lord saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Look at the posture that they worship in. They fall on their face. When you see God being revealed, you're like, ah, it's pretty good. You fall on your face. The awe is too great for you to stand up and put your shoulders back. You can't step to the Lord. He puts you on your face. But he's not a God that throws you down before him. He's a God that commands it out of who he is. 
When I watched, um, I don't know if any of you were there for this, but last Super Bowl, not this past one, we forgot that one. The one before that, greatest comeback ever in sports history, maybe. Okay, the Patriots were winning. This was, this was completely uncontrolled on my part. But when they tied the game, they came back from 28 to three. That's almost impossible. When they came back to tie, I fell off the couch onto my face. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. This thing just came over me. Like, this is nuts. We're a part of this somehow. I don't know how, but we're a part of this. this is amazing, right? When we see the Lord, it's gonna be better than coming back and winning. So much better. And it's gonna be that I'm on my face and people are gonna say, what's going on? And say, him, he put us here. And this is good. I am fine being here. This is what we see in the heavenly realms on their face. And then they're casting their crowns. If God is a sovereign God, how do they get the crown in the first place? Him, everything he lined up. So when they cast their crowns down, it's saying, you, you did all this. You're the one that's worthy of this. You are the true king of kings, not me. You're the one to wear royalty, not me. I'm attributing that everything that I've received is from you. You get all the glory for this. And then they say, you're worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Worth moves us. When you see something that is worthy, it moves you. It just does. It's like you lose control over the awe and the marvelousness of this object that you're beholding. They're caught up in this, this moment, which is an eternal moment of awe that I get to be in your presence. So ceaseless, declarative and descriptive words, a humble posture, it's about you, not about us. And then, and then it's all about Jesus. Now this passage moved me significantly this week. I tried to imagine myself here at the scene as this is taking place because John, Jesus's friend, is the one writing this that's getting to see this. So I'm like, okay, Dwight, if you were there, what would this be like? So here we go, Revelation 5, one through seven. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, so God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. What a sad thing. What a sad thing. Be like, man, the Lord God has something he wants us to benefit from and no one can open it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So it's like, no, someone can do this. So it's exciting. All right, who? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, there's a lot of imagery that's gonna be happening, okay, so don't get lost in this. Among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, this is Jesus, as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes. Okay, Jesus in his resurrection didn't develop horn disease or you know, have multiple eyes. These are all symbolic, okay? With seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the worship that's going on in heaven is around God who's seated on the throne and Jesus, who is also God. We believe that there's one God who exists as three, who is one God. We believe that there's God the Father, God the Son, who's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. All three, one God, who exists as three, yet who are one. You're like, I don't know. I know. It's wild. But this is our God. And somehow all of the worship that we're going to see now is around the work of Jesus. That it's only his ability 
that we're going to look deeply into the ability of Jesus for all of eternity. And we'll never get bored with it, never. And when the people who are in heaven, when they get to see his work, look at what happens. It erupts, the whole place just erupts in worship. It's like Jesus coming out from behind the curtain and the place loses their minds. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, they fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So heaven is losing their mind. New songs are being written. People are falling on their faces again. They're breaking out the harps. Okay, I think that's Greek for electric guitar, probably, but they're, they're making music. They're making music. They're, their hearts are erupting in melody because they can't keep quiet anymore because Jesus has stepped out. And we don't have to wait for Jesus to, to step out into this scene. Jesus is here now. He's right here. Our hearts can be bursting with joy. Our hearts can erupt in worship of who this God really is. It's possible. And the focus is on the work of Jesus. Nothing happens without Jesus. Let me read these again. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open the seals for you were slain. Jesus came to die. What we're gonna celebrate this next week, Jesus intended to do. He came because you and I could not perfectly sacrifice for ourselves. You and I could not be a good enough boy or girl to show God how worthy we are. And so there are two options. God could send everyone who is unholy, which is everyone, away from him for all of eternity. There'd be absence of him. Or he could come and do the job himself. And this is what he did in the person of Jesus Jesus leaves heaven, comes down to earth, takes on human flesh, lives a life of holy worship, perfect, no blemish. He lives it on our behalf, goes to the cross intentionally. He's not a victim. He intended to do that for you, for me. By his death and by his blood, it says, by your blood, you ransom people for God. You bought people back. Jesus' blood bought people back. He paid the price of your blood could never pay. You can be forgiven. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This movement of God is not only for white or Asian or African. It's not for any nation, not for any color, not for just any people group. It's for everyone. You ransom people from every language, people, nation. You've made them a kingdom. You've brought together these hostile people to one another and you've brought them into one big family. And they're a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. This is the work of Jesus Jesus dies a substitutionary death in your place and he rises on the third day so that you can have life. You're gonna be just like Jesus. When you see Jesus face to face, if you're part of his people, you're gonna be just like him. Just like him, able to stand in the presence of God. All your sins gone. No more blemish. No more shame. No more guilt. No more sacrifice to be made. Jesus has done it all. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus lived, died, rose, and calls you to believe in him today. So this is worship in heaven. 
Okay, we've gotten to see into heaven, glory of God revealed, ceaseless words that are descriptive and declarative, humbled posture. People are pumped. They really are. One day we'll be very vocal, be an amazing day. And it's all about him. Absolutely all about him. And then the camera, right, if, if we're thinking that way, the camera moves from there and moves down. And this is where we come in. Revelation 5, 13 says this. It says that, yeah. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Every creature everywhere worshiping him. So somehow in this vision, John is seeing everything going on in heaven, and yet it's also connected to earth. By the way, you're on earth today. Welcome. You're on earth. Somehow we're part of this picture of worship that we can too see the glory of the Lord, that he is worthy of sacrificing our lives, giving up everything, because we already have him and we can be transformed by him. This is possible today. So the question that we move into is now, what does heavenly worship look like here on earth? What does heavenly worship look like here on earth? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament written by a guy named Matthew. Very, um, very cute in how they name things. Written by Matthew. And Matthew chapter five to seven, basically show us what kingdom or heaven rhythms look like here on earth. How is heaven lived out here on earth? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You could go home and read it. Wouldn't take you very long, 20 minutes. But this is what Jesus is talking about. And we're just gonna look at one aspect of this because I, I think it encapsulates everything. What does heavenly worship look like here on earth? How do I worship the Lord as I'm shuffling papers on Monday morning? How do I worship the Lord when I get my paycheck on Thursday? How do I worship the Lord as I'm driving kids to soccer practice? How do I worship the Lord as I'm sleeping at night? How do I worship the Lord as I'm watching television? How do I worship the, how do I worship the Lord? Because we're all worshipers all the time. How does the heavenly worship break into our normal, ordinary lives? And there are six things. We're gonna move through them really quickly as well. Let me read this again for us. Pray, like, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord is teaching them how to pray. But in teaching them how to pray, he's saying, I want for you to pray like this because I want for you to be engaging with the worship that's happening in heaven as you're here on earth. So the first part of, of worship is engagement. Our father in heaven, you have a new dad. You have a new dad. I tell my kids all the time, you have a father in heaven who is far better than me. And in their more broken moments, they remind me of that. We have a better dad than you. I know, I know. And you're theologically arrogant, but I know, I get it. But we have a new dad. And what we saw in heaven is that there weren't bystanders. There weren't people standing on the sideline, right? As the, the living creatures and the elders were all bowing down and someone is maybe more Presbyterian or something is over on the side looking in, I don't know. Uh, more Baptists, you know, looking in. Uh, no, there's no bystanders. If you didn't get that, that's fine. If you did, maybe you should repent of what I just did. Uh, but there's no bystanders. They're all participating. They're all looking in, right? Our father, our dad, we get to participate. That our father wants for us to engage him on a regular basis. Did you know that God wants to be bothered by you? As a dad, sometimes I'm so into a book that I don't want to be bothered. Go talk to your mom. And then when they come back, I'm like, oh, she's just as engaged in her book. So we'll go talk to your mom again. Uh, 
But as an earthly dad, sometimes I don't want to be bothered. But our heavenly dad always wants to be bothered. Always. And he's not bothered. He invites little kids to him. Right? Jesus said, don't keep away the little kids. His disciples are trying to keep the kids out. Why do we want the kids out? Because they're loud and noisy and they don't know how to read. So how can they engage with worship music? And they just want to run around and contemplate moments. And they're like, poop. You know, it's like, don't say poop. They're poop, right? It's like, they get louder. They just interrupt everything. And Jesus is like, come on, bring those kids. I want them. I think he did that so that we as much more mature adultish people we know that we're welcome too. In our weirdness, in our brokenness, in our strangeness, the Father wants us to engage with him. Not when we're, everything is good and perfect and well in our lives, but in every moment that we have a dad that invites us, especially in our brokenness. And he wants ceaseless engagement. Remember when we looked in heaven? Holy, holy, holy all the time. Doesn't mean you need to walk down St. Catherine. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God. You don't need to do that. But what does that look like? What does that look like? What does a ceaseless worship look like? I think it looks like my daughter's relationship with me. My little girl, Sadie, she says to me all the time, like randomly, daddy, like what? What's going on? I love you. Okay. I love you too. Daddy, what? Thank you for this. Okay, Sadie, like, thank you. (laughs) I don't know what to say. But she just, she blurts it out. Ceaseless engagement with me, no matter where, where I am. That's the invitation of our father. And he's not pulling the awkward face like, okay, thank you, right? But it's the dad, I love you. Oh, dad, thank you for this meal. People get all weird before a meal, right? So you like sit down and, and I'm a pastor, right? So I should really be the one leading in this holy ceremony of thanking the Lord with way too many words before we eat a meal. But people get all weird and like someone goes take a bite. It's like, that food's not blessed. You know, like put that nacho down. It's like that nacho's not going to be blessed anyway, right? There's nothing, but bring on more nachos. But it gets weird. And instead of being this like nice thing where our, our kids around the table are amazing. Oftentimes this prayer is like, dad, give us an awesome day tomorrow. I hate Satan. Oh, dad, I hate you're so much more powerful than Satan. Thank you. I love mom. Amen. And you're just like, all right, good prayer. But that's them engaging with the father. I'm not going to get in the way of that. Not going to get in the way of that. That's what our dad wants ceaseless engagement. It's available now. Don't wait until you get to see him face to face. Dad, I love you. Dad, thank you for this. Dad, I'm so excited about this opportunity. I don't want to show my excitement too much because I don't want people to think, you know, this about me, but dad, I'm so excited. Dad, this is, this is for you. Dad, I love you. Dad, I need you, right? Constant engagement. This is what our father in heaven is for. Dad, Dad, worship includes engagement. Secondly, worship includes reverence. We revere him. That though we can call him dad, he's not just dad. He's a dad who is holy. He's a dad who's other. He's a dad who's separate. He's a dad who is holy and who makes us holy, but he is holy. And so this prayer, our father is in heaven, hallowed be your name. How many of us whipped out hallowed this week? No one, all right? Here's what it means. Let your name be kept holy. Let your name be kept holy. Now, of course, God is gonna keep his name holy. He's not gonna go against it and be like, hey guys, sorry, repenting. I watched Jersey Shore this week. Uh, No, it's, you should repent of that probably. Um, But let your name be kept holy. Let your name be kept holy. What does this mean? What does this mean? That God is other, but we can now boldly approach his throne. Okay, don't miss that. We can now boldly approach his throne of mercy, of grace. We already looked at that. And now we have a family name that's written on us, holy. 
holy priests in the Old Testament used to wear this, this turban and they would go in and minister in the temple and it would say, holy unto the Lord. They would be representing all the people of God as they would go in. But now we as the people of God that we saw in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, that we are made a kingdom and priests of our God. So we too are called holy to the Lord. The weird thing about Christianity is that, uh, or any religion for that matter, is that we often think that yes, God is holy and in order for us to be holy, we need to earn it on our own. So we set up our, our to-do list and our don't-do list and we just try and work really hard towards that end, seeking out being holy at some point. When we do enough, we get enough aeroplane points or whatever, God works like the aeroplane card and we get enough, then we get silver status and gold status and then we can take you know, maple leaf showers or something. I don't, I don't know, right? All these weird things that we set up. But we're made holy because of what God did. We're made holy. We didn't earn this. We're made holy because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And then we're called into holy living because of who we are. Have you ever heard someone or have you said, like, you're my, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child. You don't act like that. You're not supposed to act like that because you represent me. God is saying, I've made you holy. I've given you my spirit called the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, who is equipping you to go and live like Jesus in all of life. Are we gonna do that perfectly? No, but holiness is being Jesus-like not self-righteous. Ah, I'm holy, you're not. You suck, I don't. Not that. But it's being Jesus-like. That's holiness. And holiness demonstrates who God is to the world. It really does. We know what self-righteous declares to the world. No one wants to be a part of that. But when you see someone living holy, when you see someone living like Jesus, and then their motivation is like Jesus, man, I wanna be around those people. Think about caring for the poor, okay? There's a way that we can care for the poor that is religious and one that is out of the gospel, the good news. Here it is. Someone will care for the poor. Now, I'm not gonna argue that people should care for the poor. We should, right? I think the valuing caring for the poor actually comes from God, but that's okay. We won't argue that today, all right? But someone can care for the poor because it's a nice thing to do. Why is it a nice thing to do? Well, it helps them out and it makes me feel good. Okay, so let me break down your motivation. Your motivation is that it makes you feel good. If it didn't make you feel good, you wouldn't do it. So that's religion. Why do you care for, for people who don't have a lot of money or resources or whatever? Well, because it makes me feel good. All right, that's great. I'm glad that you're doing that for that person but the motivation is a religious motivation because you're saving yourself. But when you get someone who cares for the poor because of their new identity that they have in Jesus, why do you care for the poor? Well, because God cares for the poor and, and I was poor in spirit. I was destitute. I was desperate. God came after me. God has given me his spirit. God has given me his resources and God's desire is to to care for the poor. And so I wanna now care for the poor because I'm serving him. Not to get anything, not because, ah, oh, it makes me feel really good. In fact, some of the deepest serving won't make you feel good because some of the deepest serving, you'll never receive recognition. In fact, you might receive hostility and persecution for doing it, but it's not about what you get from it. You've already gotten everything that you need from Jesus, so now you're free to go give everything away. There's a difference between religion and the gospel. Thirdly, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People love saying that. But this is, this is a declaration of submission. How many of us love submitting to someone this week? Thank you, officer, for pulling me over. I love to submit to your ticket. It's amazing. Thank you, oh, wonderful and kind boss. I would love to submit to your edict to return all of these emails in this fashion and stay late. Oh, wow, so thankful, right? We don't love to submit. It's hard. It's hard to get behind someone else's agenda. And yet learning to submit to the Father is essential. Learning, because this is really us learning what's best. 
Learning to submit to the Father is learning how to receive what's best. It's learning to receive gifts from heaven. And this isn't like gold dust. You just wait long enough, gold dust will fall from heaven. It's not that. This is really hard. It's hard to submit to the Father. Because here's what he says. In the rest of Matthew 5 to 7, we see things like worship is reconciliation, not retaliation. Ah. That's not fun. When you feel the feelings, you want to punch people. And you're like, oh, that's too violent. Okay, you passive aggressive person. You want to get back at them a different way, right? But we want to retaliate. That's a natural thing to do. But heaven's agenda is actually reconciliation, not retaliation. How do you like submitting to that? But I want my justice. No, 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 justice is the Lord's. It'll come later. You go reconcile with that person. But they wronged me so many times. I know, I know. And you wronged me so many times and I've forgiven you. Now go and reconcile with that person. That's not fun. Loving the enemies. Loving enemies, not harming them. Matthew 5, 43 to 47. How many of us love loving our enemies? Not really. Doesn't make me feel the feelings. Doesn't get me excited. And yet this is what submission looks like. Heaven on earth is messy and often disagreeable with us and our plans. But here's what it does. It glorifies the king. It makes much of Jesus. It makes him famous when we're reconciling, not retaliating when we're loving enemies, not trying to destroy them. Because it shows that we're submitting to a different plan. We're submitting to heaven on earth, not earth trying to earn heaven out of our power. Fourthly, worship is dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. We as humanity, we tried independence. Our first parents said, no, God, we're good. We're gonna try our own way. That ended up in death. And death has kept winning over and over and over. But what God did through Jesus on the cross and the resurrection is that he is now reforming us to depend and trust in him as our dad. And here's the thing. God wants us to ask. I talked to so many people and, and I talked to myself as well, all right, confession. But we don't like to ask for things. And it gets weird that we take that to God as well. Well, I ask God, you know, for this and this and this. I can't keep asking for things. But he actually tells us in Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11, to ask him. James, Jesus' earthly brother, says, do you know why you don't have? Because you don't ask. God is a good dad that wants to give his kids what they need. He's a good dad that wants for his kids to depend on him. And he's gonna provide everything that we need for his mission. So worship, this is what worship is, a part of it. It's actually asking and thanking God. We think of worship as you know music, hands raised, whatever. But worship is asking God. When you say, God, I need you for this, that's worship. And you say, God, thank you for these nachos, worship. God, thank you for this opportunity. God, thank you somehow for this hardship. I don't know how this is good. This is against my will, but somehow it's your will. Thank you for this and what it's gonna produce. I don't understand it, but I need you. I'm dependent on you. That's worship. That's worship. What rhythms cause you to see need and give thanks? What situations has God given to you to be able to depend on the Father for. Fifth, transformation. Transformation. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive. How can we really, really forgive someone? Forgiving someone is very costly because forgiveness bears the cost of the trespass done against us. Someone sins against you and you say, I forgive you. It means that you take the cost and you bear it. You own it. I'm not going to bring it back up again. Couples counseling. This happens all the time. It's issues that are being brought back up and they say, you forgave me for that. 
yeah, but you, yeah, but I didn't really forgive you. I go, okay, okay, well, that's not really forgiveness. Forgiveness is bearing the weight, the cost of what was done against you. It's so costly. Here's the heart of the father that the father wants to forgive. Jesus wants to forgive. Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, right? These are the people who put nails in his hands, who were spitting on him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' heart is oozing forgiveness. And when we are being transformed to be like Jesus, God is gonna make our hearts to ooze forgiveness. We're gonna long to be giving forgiveness to those who have hurt us most. This isn't natural. This isn't an overnight thing for most people. Our overnight thing is vengeance and concocting plans and whiteboarding them out. I hope not, but I mean, that, that's what we do. We try and figure out how I can get back at people. But God helps us to see how much we've been forgiven so we can't withhold forgiveness. Feel the weight of that. We can't withhold forgiveness. Why? Because we've been forgiven everything. And the sin that's been done against us primarily and ultimately is actually against God. So we as his people can't withhold Forgiveness. We work through the process. We long for reconciliation because we're being made just like Jesus. I know that's hard, but this is the type of work that Jesus is doing. Lastly, we're obsessed. Worship is an obsession. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil longs, for anywhere else worship. Anywhere else except the throne in Jesus. That's evil. Attributing ultimate glory, sacrificing, and being transformed by anything else other than the one who sits on the throne and Jesus. But the prayer here is help me to refuse to turn from what's best. I know that you are best. Spirit that's dwelling in me, I know you want me to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. I, want, I know you want for my eyes to remain locked on him. And would you make an obsession for Jesus, my new normal life? It doesn't mean you have to wear Jesus t-shirts and get bracelets and tattoos on your face and things like that. But our obsession is him. And this spills out into normal, ordinary life. I went and saw um, the Apostle Paul movie this past week. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Uh, hold your money, rent it, maybe. It wasn't great. What was great, though, well, it was at least accurate. Okay, so that's good. No rock monsters or anything in this one. Um, but what was amazing is to see the way that the gospel just overflowed through Paul's life. They made him sound like kind of a walking tweet machine. You know, Luke, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like just kind of thrown out there and he's like, write that down. I'm ruining the movie for you, but you've read the New Testament probably. So that's there. But there was an obsession in Paul. He's all about Jesus. He's always spilling Jesus over to everyone else because he was obsessed with him. This is what worship does. It leads us to be obsessed with Jesus. And our worship of Jesus impacts others and leads us to others. So let me close with this quote, a long quote by John Piper. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. We talk about being on mission all the time and talking to people about Jesus, and that's amazing. But missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is, ultimately, is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. 
It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 97.1. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 67.3 and 4. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O most high. Missions begins and ends in worship. We want to see the city reached. It doesn't begin with us going out and doing all these things. It begins in worship. It begins in our white hot pursuit of the glory of God, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus so that speaking to people is no longer about how do I say the right things or the right words. It becomes, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me show you about the one that I'm seeing and beholding in his glory in part, but will in his fullness. Let me tell you about the one who broke in to change me. Let me tell you about the one who calls me to depend on him. It it just bubbles over just overflows. This is what worship does. This is heaven breaking in. This is what our city needs. And whatever you need today, you can ask boldly for that. You can say, God, I don't depend on you. Ask him for it. God, I don't submit to you. Ask him for it. I'm not being transformed. Ask him for it. You don't have because you don't ask. But in asking, don't develop the plan of how God's gonna change you. Submit to whatever it is that he's giving. You see, it's an obsession of him that will engulf your heart with love and boldness to go into the city and live your normal, ordinary life with intentionality so that the nations would know him and be glad. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond. Before we do that as well, we're gonna see a video of how the the Lord is reaching the nations. Our Father, you're in heaven, but you're here. Let your name be kept holy. Let it be kept holy through us. Give us a white hot pursuit of your glory. Let us in our lives look more like you than, than yesterday. Give us this deep desire to see the nations be glad in you. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us everything that we need and we're dependent on you. We wanna be a church that, that is known for seeking your glory, not ours, for giving away our resources, not figuring out how we can use others to get more. We want for your name to be kept holy. We want for the city to see you. We want to pray, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, at, we're asking for these things, Dad, so give them to us. We love you and we need you for everything today. Amen.